Our teaching text comes from Luke chapter 10, picking up in verse 38. This is what we read. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that she, that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So a, a, a while back, I'm in my early 20s, I'm uh, finishing up seminary, and I'm working at a local church while I'm doing that, and then I get invited to go to this conference by the senior leader at my church. And if you're kind of unfamiliar with the church world, ch churches in churchianity, I guess you could say, has conferences for everything. Like they have conferences on organizational leadership and worship and prayer and pastoring. Like basically if there's any little thing, uh, Christians are probably going to throw a conference for it. And so I was then invited to one such conference. This was um, a conference that was pretty niche. Like it was for, I don't know, intellectual and liturgical Christians. So people who like to stand up and sit down a lot in their gatherings and they pray the prayers of, they pray the prayers of saints. And now I'm there, I'm like going to this. And just a little context on me at this point in my life. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm working at this proper mega church. There are multiple campuses, thousands and thousands of people, central campus. I'm like a, a pastor of one of the venues. And then I get invited by the senior leader who's mentoring me now to a conference. Uh, suffice it to say, I'm, I'm like, I'm feeling myself. Like I'm feeling like quite the big deal uh, because I'm headed to Manhattan for this church conference. And I come to find out that we're actually going to this conference because my boss is going to ask the, like, the um, organizer of this conference to endorse his upcoming book. So he doesn't actually care about the content of the conference, which again is intellectual and liturgical. He's just going because he needs or wants the endorsement and I get to tag along. And what was mostly irrelevant for him actually turns out being uh, like a watershed moment for me, becomes this big deal for me in my life. I, I, you see, we're, we're there. And one of the main speakers for the event was this gal named uh, Nadia Bowles Weber. If you know who she is, she's a Lutheran pastor. Um, I don't know, she's like all tatted up. She pastors a church in Denver. I had no idea who she was. And she's talking now about holistic care, like how that God actually cares about our bodies. She's talking about the environment, how God has invited humanity to care for creation, that that's a part of us worshiping Jesus. And all of this stuff, you can tell like the subculture that I'm involved in, it's all novel. It's all new. I'm like, hold on, Jesus cares about the environment? I mean, I'm like me, I'm like littering. I'm like throwing spitters out the window. And, um, but she's talking about this. And my, I'm, this is amazing. And I thought it was interesting. My boss thought it was interesting. And so I asked him after, I, I said, well, how do you reconcile sitting under the teaching of a woman and enjoying it? Now, I think you can tell a lot about the world that I lived in by asking that question. Just as soon as I asked that question, he responds and he's like, well, you see, we're at a conference. We're not a part of a local church. And so she is not my pastor. I'm not sitting under her leadership. It's almost like this Christian uh, loophole for conferences, which I, I thought was kind of ironic. Um, now, I'm not sure how this little story from my past maps onto your present. 
I have no idea if all of a sudden you like feel yourself recoiling. You're like, this action, like I need to, I need to do do something. I need to like protect in this moment. See, I, I think that this little story from my past in this moment, it actually maps out the terrain of our topic today pretty well. You have leadership, local churches, can women teach? Can they not teach? What is the context in, in, in submission? Who does what to when and where? And knowing our church, like I, I know that these words alone, they can kind of raise our hackles. Um, and maybe again, you feel defensive, you feel yourself withdrawing to kind of protect some tender parts of your story. Or, or maybe you're like, you're like, I need to, there's some truth I need to protect right now. And so I just, let me just say this off the bat. This is not about me telling you what to believe. Are we clear? This is not about Kyle telling any of you what to believe about the Bible. I think that you are all like beautiful people who have the capacity in community to read the scriptures. We can wrestle with them together. So let me just put that little caveat there. Instead, this is my hope. I have three hopes for today. First is to bring some humanity to this topic so that we can actually have the capacity to dialogue across our differences when they arise, and they surely do. Second, it is for us to kind of explore what I think is this subversive vision of Jesus and women in leadership. And lastly, I just want to show us a path forward through, I think, what is like maybe the peskiest of the pesky passages in 1 Timothy. So those are going to be our three things. We're going to dialogue, look at a subversive story, and then we're going to get into the text. How's that sound? Yeah, we're in for it. Okay. Well, uh, to start, what, what do I mean by a dialogue? Well, let me just tell a little story to get us there. See, when I was interviewing to have this job, I submitted a handful of character references, as you would do with most any jobs. And so I, I submit a character reference, and I then get a call from the person who was referenced, and they said, hey, I just got off the phone with Gateway. I said, oh, that's great. And then the next thing is, my friend says, I didn't know your position had changed. Now, if you know me, as I'm learning new things, a lot of my positions change. Like, I don't know, if, if they need to be changed, they should change, I, th I guess. So I wasn't really sure what he was talking about. And I said, so what do you mean? He said, well, I just got off the phone with Whitney, who's on the board at Gateway. And then he, my friend proceeds to start quoting Bible passages to me. Not at me, there's a distinction. He then starts to express genuine concern for me. And the conversation didn't really go anywhere. The converse, that is, the conversation didn't move into a dialogue, nor did it like devolve into a debate. The conversation just kind of sat there, pregnant with tension. And I think that is where a lot of followers of Jesus and maybe a lot of us here sit is like, when it comes to women in leadership, there's this pregnant tension. And that tension makes sense. Because a dialogue is by definition this, it is a discussion between two or more people or groups, especially one directed toward, and listen to this, exploration of a particular subject or resolution of a problem. See, it's not said straight up in that little definition that I just pulled off of Google, but um, to dialogue with somebody is to assume a posture of humility. If you're gonna explore something, you might just be submitting that you've not been there before. If you're going to resolve a problem, it actually means that there might be some sort of tension. But absent of humility, at least in, anecdotally in my experience, like absent of humility, dialogues do not happen. 
because a conversation will quickly just like turn against me against you it's like we pit ourselves one person one subject one topic over and against another and in a debate the stakes they feel higher and we kind of attach ourselves to the outcome because if if the thing that we're thinking is proven wrong then it starts to feel like we are the ones who are wrong and this is not just about bible and theology i imagine you've experienced it in other things so for example if i don't know if you're like a vikings fan and a green bay packers fan rolls up and then a question is put to you which team is better i'm imagining that you'll skip dialogue and go straight to debate and if the if the like if the tension is high enough you might actually skip debate and get into like fisticuffs or something like that my point is this is not just about bible and theology when it comes to women in leadership like the space between right and wrong it is this pregnant tension and many of us just reside there and we're and it's tearing at us as a church not just this church but churches in general and that ought not be so and, and to my but to my mind like this is why it can be so difficult to talk about this you know it's curious in in most churches it's like generally about at least in in 2020 it was 50 50 in terms of women and men you go back to the early 2000s and it's about 70 30 in terms of women to men so you just have to figure like who are the people who are in the context of a local church it's women it's men it's a whole group of people who are trying to hold this tension together or not hold it together at all. And so I just, I just want to say that this can be a difficult conversation. And so if you're somebody who affirms that women are equal in dignity and function, and in Christ they have access to every level of leadership in the local church according to gifting and desire, then you are declared right by egalitarians, but you're also declared wrong by complementarians. And conversely, if you affirm the dignity of all humanity, you say everybody's created equal, but you simultaneously affirm a created order where women and men are, where men are created to lead and women are created to follow, then you are deemed wrong by egalitarians and right by complementarians. It kind of looks like this. On one side, you have this radical equity, and on the other side, you have hierarchy. To put it in modern terms, on the one side, you have a call to dismantle the patriarchy. Have any of you seen those shirts cruising around, F the patriarchy? I, those make me chuckle a little bit, but that's, I guess, neither here nor there. But on one side, you have a call to dismantle the patriarchy, and on the other, you have a call for benevolent patriarchy. And before we go, like, go on to define these terms, I just want to remind us um, that people are not the positions they hold. I, like, uh, an election cycle is upon us. But in two years, it's going to get kind of fierce. Let me just remind us here. You are not the position you hold politically. You are not the positions you hold theologically. Nor are the people who hold differing positions the position they hold. They're people to be loved, not problems to be solved. You get to choose how you want to engage with that. And that, that's not to say that their ideas shape them in ways that challenge you and have hurt you or hold you back from a, like freedom in Christ. I'm just, I'm just saying they're people. And so with that in mind, let's just get into some of these definitions. What do, what do we mean when we say patriarchy? Now, I just want to say, um, I could be wrong about this definition. I'm just like trying to appeal to people who are smarter than me. So if you're like, I don't think I jive with that, then just chat to me afterwards. But patriarchy is this. It's, it's a term that means father rule. It's a term that means father rule. And patriarchy is 
a way to describe how communities are organized. It's thought that historically, once, once property ownership became a thing, so you have agriculture and property ownership, that patriarchy kind of rises up at that same time. But when you think about Jesus's context, patriarchy man manifested itself through the family because the family was more than like an individual unit out in the suburbs where you pull in after work, you close the garage door behind you and that's your life. The family is where commerce takes place. The family is where your business and all of your community relations happen. And the, fa and the father is the one who sits atop the whole of that family. It is about father rule. And complementarianism makes the case that this type of rule, that patriarchy is by God's design. And it's meant to be benevolent. That is, it's meant to be good for the good of others. And in that, in that way of thinking, women and men, they are created equal in dignity and status before God. They both bear God's image. But there's distinction according to function of their roles. So in the home or in the family, women are, are to be subordinate to the, to the headship of men in marriage. And in the life of the local church, Men are called to lead and women are called to follow in this complementary fashion. How are we doing? Just stay with me here, folks. This is key because at the end of the day, however you interpret those New Testament texts, those pesky passages, what are called clobber passages, the argument or the conversation inevitably comes back to what creation was like. It'll come back to whether or not patriarchy is indeed God's created good or not. And in response to this, you have egalitarianism. Egalitarianism makes the case that, that hierarchy, this, this paradigm that places men above women, is a distortion of God's created good. And God's desire is for the church to be an alternative community that embodies a different way of being human, a different ethic of equality. And, and to do so by the power of Jesus. So rather than trying to be the best version of a broken system, egalitarianism makes the case that God's kingdom is a whole new system to be lived into. And I, I think like so much of life, whether it is relational or political or theological, we're, we're like pushed to the side. And this like polarizing aspect of most of life, it makes it so it's really difficult to have a conversation about what these things might be because it's either down with the patriarchy on the one side or equal, like benevolent patriarchy on the other. And one is in the name of equality, which I think we want. And the other is in the name of obedience to God, which I think we also want. So it feels like that pregnant tension. And, and I'm just, I'm persuaded that there's a different way that we don't have to live on one side or the other, that we don't have to compromise equality or compromise obedience to God, that we can actually live in this place where, where there is both. And th this is what I mean. Um, there is another way available and it's not a place that is driven by fear or grabbing for power. See, to my mind, both complementarianism and egalitarianism are driven by and stuck in fear. See, for complementarians, uh, the, the fear is that their understanding of God's created order will be overturned. In other words, if you teach the radical inclusion of women into all access, like all roles of the church and in home, then it, it, it will lead to disobedience. And the fear is that we're going to subvert God's created order. And then for the egalitarians, the fear is similar, but it's from the other side. It's a fear that oppression of women will continue, that, that they'll continue to be placed in positions of weakness and vulnerability. And in both of these places, the fear is about losing control. 
And this fear, it leads towards seeking power for control. It manifests in men and women alike, seeking to like hold dominant positions over and against the other. And whatever you think about the Apostle Paul in this season of your life, love him or hate him or be indifferent about him, like he was right in saying that a spirit of fear is incompatible with the spirit of Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have access to this powerful love. We have access to a sound mind. That is, we actually have a way in Christ to move forward. And I, I think that means that we have a way to move forward in harmony. Because I think that there is a position where we don't have to be driven by fear and it's unwilling to grasp for power. So I just want to invite us this, to this place of, of harmony. It might look like this. It's a place where women are not pit against men or men exalted over women, but a place where women and men can lead together according to their giftedness and desire. And this is what the, the late biblical scholar Rebecca Merrill Grutwees called complementarity without hierarchy. Just, just try that on for a moment. Complementarity without hierarchy. It's a mouthful. And like some people just say mutuality, which I think is way simpler, but I like this one because it, I don't know, kind of plays with the words. So this is a place where women and men in distinct and similar ways can lead and teach according to their gifting and embrace their distinctions as a gift for the good of the other. And some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds lovely, Kyle. Like this whole complementarity without hierarchy thing, but what about those pesky passages? You know, the ones that say that women are to remain silent or have their head covered or that they can neither teach nor have authority in the church. What do you do with those? Well, we'll, we'll get there at the end, but to, to get there, we, we have to see that there is an actual tension in those texts. And that tension, it comes in the context of generally Paul encouraging a community, but that tension is not the whole story. So I just... What's the story? What is the subversive story? Well, you see, ours is a story I think that's broader. It's more complex than an either or paradigm where we like baptize the binary and say you're either this way for equality or this way for obedience. No, it's, it's something that's more beautiful. And I just want to invite you, if you want, if you have your Bibles, you can turn all the way back to the beginning, but it'll be on the screen. Um, this is Genesis 1, picking up in verse 26. This, this is what we read. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In verse 27, we read this. So God created humanity in his, his little poetic reflection on what we just heard. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. I, I just want you to pay attention to the work that both male and female are given to do. That, that is the work and calling, or, or you could call it the vocation of all humanity, male and female. The, these creatures that are made in God's image, it is mutual. They are both called to rule over. Your translation may say, have dominion over. They are both called to rule over the earth. Both man and woman bear the image of God. They both represent God as God's ambassador in creation. And both man and woman are blessed by God to be fruitful. Both man and woman are called to increase in number and fill the earth. And both man and woman are called to subdue the land. 
When, when you turn the page to Genesis chapter 2 and you get this kind of complementary story to Genesis 1, you, you read this moment that I think helps fill out, well, how does that work? This is in Genesis 2.18. Check this out. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. But, but just stop right there. This is the first time you hear that something is not good in the story so far. And the thing that is not good is isolation. So we, we see here that humanity, when you see the man read, it's Adam, you could say it's humanity. We go on, I will make a helper suitable for him. And typically at this point, it's, it's this, the tail end of that verse, I will make a suitable helper for him or a helpmate. It's, it's when this verse is then weaponized as uh, like a, for debate. It's like, well, okay, that kind of settles it, right? Like this is it. You see there, God fashioned a woman for man from man. I, I remember early on hearing a Bible teacher talk about why he enjoyed um, cuddling with his spouse, how she would be right here in his side because she was taken from, from man's side. So she belongs right back there. And at the time I was like, yes. And I'm like, well, that's actually a picture of mutuality and then being side by side. And anyways, there's, so let me just say this on the surface, this is quite strong. And, and, and if you read it like that, you're like, yeah, there, there it is. She's not a mutual participant. She's not, but she's made from man for man, I guess. Okay, well, there it is in the text. But curiously, the, the term that's used here, suitable, suitable helper, is this uh, term ezer konegdo in Hebrew. Give that a try, ezer konegdo. Mm -hmm. This is uh, really punk rock, by the way. This is like one of my favorite things in the Bible. See, ezer means something like help. When God says there's no suitable helper, he's not talking about there's nobody to do the dishes or to help with taxes or to clean up on the house. No, God's saying there's no help. And what's even more curious is that the vast majority of times when this term, when an ezer shows up in the Hebrew Bible, it's talking about God. It is God who comes and is described as the one who comes to help Israel in military conflict. In other words, the Ezer is the one who helps. The, 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 the Ezer comes and connectos, that is, she comes alongside to do battle. The Ezer connecto is the warrior partner to humanity. So just hear this again. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a warring partner for humanity. And some of you are like, yes. This is, to my mind, the subversive story of God's created good. It is a place where man and woman partner together, complementarity, without hierarchy. They partner together with God in love and trust to push the bounds of flourishing into all the world. Um, but how does the story go? If you go from Genesis 2 and you turn the page, uh, if, if you don't know, the story goes quite poorly. In Genesis 3, this is what we know as the fall or the human fallout. Um, it's, it's at this place where the whole story goes sideways. sideways. In, ver in Genesis 3, we see that God's created good. It is disrupted by the dual tragedy of sin and rebellion. And, and if you read any bit of the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, or, or you've simply just lived in the world, like you know that the world aches. 
you're probably aware that you have an ache in your own soul. Like things are not as they ought to be. And it's not just out there. It's like inside of us. Things are not as they ought to be. The world is full of the strong overpowering the weak and the weak building alliances to overpower the strong. I mean, you could really think of the whole Bible from Genesis 3 onwards as the story of God's grace breaking into human brokenness to restore the story of God's created good. To restore a story of dignity and trust and flourishing between God and one another. And if we're honest, like the struggle is real. Like, I don't, I don't want to pretend that we can just read the Bible and that it's wishful thinking and then everything will be okay. It's likely that until you breathe your last breath that there will be a type of struggle. Jesus doesn't invite us to a place of like fairies and gumdrops or something like that. I don't know why fairies and gumdrops come to my mind as though that's some sort of bountiful, beautiful thing. Jesus invites us to reality and he says, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That is the invitation of Jesus to be with us in the struggle, knowing that he has overcome the struggle. But in the meantime, the struggle is real. And so too is God's in-breaking grace. It's not the either or. See, littered throughout the scriptures are these moments where we see, where we're reminded that God's grace, this, this created good is still breaking out. We see it, especially, think about our topic today, women in leadership. We see moments where Miriam is singing God's word over the Exodus generation. We, we see people like Deborah judging the whole nation of Israel, women and men. We, we see Huldah, the prophet, confirming God's word to King Josiah saying, no, this, before the, like the reforms of King Josiah come, it is, it is Huldah who confirms that this indeed is God's word, or Esther contending for her people in exile, and many more stories like this. It's, these moments stand as like a memorial in time to remind us that there is an alternative story. And so what we have in the scriptures is a, like a witness to that reality, to that different story. And I think that we then see this story on vibrant display in Jesus's life. So I want, you, I want you to recall our teaching text. You might, might have been wondering why we started in Luke 10, a story about Martha and Mary. Usually that's like, are you a Martha or are you a Mary? Are you busy or are you being attentive to Jesus? And th that's actually a good question, but it just doesn't, it's not what that passage is about. Um, in fact, when we meet Jesus here, we meet Jesus at a pit stop outside of a little town, uh, outside of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany. And as per usual, Jesus, we see Jesus teaching. And as per usual, Jesus, when Jesus is teaching, a dispute comes up, except for this dispute is a little bit different. And we actually hear the main tension in verse 40. If you want, you can see it like this. This is Martha, Lord, don't you care? Maybe we need to start like praying like Martha. <laughs> like, Lord, don't you care? But that's another sermon, I guess. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Does this sound familiar? It's as though Martha expects Mary to assume the role of a helper and that she has this expectation that Jesus would commend the same type of role. Apparently, Martha's understanding of helper has been constrained by her culture much like our own, but there is a different story. Like the warrior partner has been domesticated. And I think Jesus wants to like unleash the warrior. 
So just check this out. This is Jesus' response in verse 41. Martha, Martha. I don't know if that's Jesus' tone. That's my tone. Martha, Martha. Um, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. See, I really don't know if there's a modern, I really like racked my mind to think, is there a modern equivalent to this moment that upends the, the cultural paradigm? And I don't know, maybe if you think of one, like, I don't know, share it with a friend. But this is, this is so subversive what Jesus is doing to receive Mary in this way. Because to receive Mary at his feet and not put her out is to receive Mary as a disciple. It's, it's as though Jesus is declaring, I will not take this position from her. And some are quick to, to point out that while Mary may have been a disciple, she's not one of the 12. I don't know if any of you have heard this in the midst of this conversation. Well, Jesus, he, he, these are great, lovely, lovely conversation, yes, about the, those pesky passages. But Jesus, he chose the 12 and there were men. So, so what's going on there? Well, I, I want to problematize a view that because Jesus chooses 12 men, that women are excluded from participating in discipleship with Jesus. Because Jesus chooses 12 in a symbolic manner. There are 12 tribes of Israel. These are the 12 sons of Jacob. When Jesus chooses 12 men, he's saying there is an upstart to God's kingdom, that what was past was actually not sufficient for the renewal that God wants to bring. So I'm going to upstart this thing. Here are the new 12 ones. And if you think about the, the people who Jesus told, they abandon him. They turn him over for silver. They reject, like these are the people. They're not like the glorious students. The people that are actually there at the end are the women. So just let that sink in for a moment because if Jesus, if Jesus is choosing of the 12 precluded or, or didn't allow women in there, then what would be made of Susanna? What, what would be made of Mary of Magdalene? What would be made of Joanna, the wife of Cusa, uh, Herod's steward? What would be made of Mary of Bethany in this story or the many other women? Don't miss how wild this is. Like disciples in Jesus' day do not choose their rabbi. The rabbi chooses the disciples. But Mary flips the script and she inserts herself into the place of a disciple. This is radical because the whole purpose of a disciple is to be with your rabbi. There's this little idiom from the time, it's to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's that as you walked along on the road that the, the dust from the sandals of your rabbi would be actually be caked on you. You are so close to them because the call of a disciple is to be with your rabbi so you might become like your rabbi and eventually do what your rabbi did and maybe even be a rabbi. To receive Mary in that space is radical. And Jesus affirms her and says, I will not put her out. In other words, Jesus just unbundled the cultural expectations of the day. Jesus just unbundled the culturally defined spaces for women and men. And I'm not saying that Jesus then dissolves Mary's identity. Like she's still very much a woman in this space and she is still very much in the culture and so too is Jesus. I'm just saying that when Jesus receives her, he affirms her value apart from her cultural role. This is the subversive culture of the way of Jesus. This is why the early church is chock full of women, because this is the Jesus who receives them. 
And what I love about this is that Jesus doesn't receive Mary and dismiss Martha. He receives Mary and invites Martha to reframe the story, to, to think about it in a different way. Because ultimately, discipleship to Jesus, following Jesus, apprenticing to Jesus is about participating with Jesus. to be with him and to become like him and to do what he did. So to declare that Mary will not be removed does more than like affirm a general program of, I don't know, radical inclusion or something like that. No, it shows us how in Christ, the Jesus movement aims to restore the story of God's created good, a place where women and men in distinct and similar ways lead and teach according to their gifting. And maybe you're thinking, okay, Kyle, I've noticed that you've said women and men leading and teaching, but there's still those pesky passages. So are you ready for, for the text? If you've like grown up in the church, you're like, okay, let's do it. One Timothy, let's go there. Uh, if you've not, um, just be patient with us because this is kind of like an in-house battle. Like when mom and dad are having an argument and you're like, oh no, what's gonna happen? That's kind of what this is like. This is the text. This is in 1 Timothy 2. We pick up um, in verse 11 and this is what we read. Um, if you, yeah, just, just hear this. A woman or a wife should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. How are you doing? That's like your life verse. You want to get that cross-stitched on a pillow. There's actually, there's actually some beautiful things happening here. Um, but a plain reading of this text, again, it's quite strong. Um, and, and like some of my best friends, they read this and they're like, Kyle, um, what more is there to explore? Like there it is. There's the restriction. No teaching, no authority. You can't get around it, bro. My, my friends call me bro. You can tell the people I love. Um, and Paul roots it in creation. Like, what are you gonna do with that? So your whole like subversive story of like God's created good, like there's actually something different going on there. And this is what it is, it's Paul here. Paul's gonna help us interpret that. This is where we need to go. And let me just humbly submit. Um, there's a whole world to explore here. And in my mind, Paul's not concerned with restricting women for all time in the church and the home. Instead, he's interested in seeing a worshiping community. And hear this. He's interested in seeing a community of Jesus ordered by Jesus's love reemerge in Ephesus and beyond. This is a letter to Timothy as he tries to pastor the church in Ephesus. So let us not forget that. This is not just like a letter that is written to Gateway Church or to the church in America or to the church in Senegal in 2022. Though it is, it is not written to us, it is for us. See, this, this church that Paul's writing with regard to, it, it, it was one who was in the process of being ordered by the gospel. That is, these people encountered the radical love of Jesus, the Jesus that doesn't kick Mary out, and it's like, yes. But then what comes in the side door is a bunch of other stuff from their life, which isn't this true? Like the stuff that we've lived with just kind of comes along with us, and that's what's there, is all this other stuff. And Paul, in this moment, for this community, he's inviting them to, to re-emerge in light of Jesus' love so that they can come back into order. 
And I think that I can actually make this case in about two points. I think there's some sub points, but it's two large points. And the first one is this, um, women have a voice. In this passage, women have a voice. If you look at the verses right before our passage, if you jump down to verse eight, this is what we read. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modesty with, with de- anybody who's been to youth group has heard this passage, um, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, uh, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So stay with me here because this is super helpful. There's a, a, a biblical scholar, his name's Kevin Giles uh, from Down Under, from Australia. And he just, he reflects these verses this way. He says, when men pray, they should do so in the absence of contention or anger. And likewise, when women pray, they should dress modestly. And you may be going, hold on a second. When I see verse nine in the NIV, it just says, I also want women to dress. But you said, Kevin Giles says, and likewise, when women pray, did Giles just like throw some additional words in there? No, he's just reading the Greek. And so this is what's interesting. The, the language that the New Testament was originally written in is Greek, and it has a lot of fun stuff that you can do in there. But, but stay with me here because this is like pure Bible nerd gold, okay? Um, right in between verses eight and nine, Paul uses a word that takes the verbs from verse eight, that is, uh, I want or I desire and I pray, or, or, and pray, so he takes those two verbs and then it applies them to the women in verse nine. So it's a, a verb that, or a, an adverb that connects the two. In other words, the assumption that, Paul's carry, that Paul carries is that both women and men have an active voice in the gathering. They are both praying. So he wants the men to pray without contention or anger. And he wants the women to pray in a way that is not distracting, like would largely be in the culture. That's Paul's invitation in that. That's the first point is that if we think that women cannot teach or have no authority, therefore they have no voice, what we have to read is just before that, that women do have a voice. If you read elsewhere in Paul's writings, women are praying and prophesying. And to my mind, I think they're actually teaching, but not just mine, but people way smarter than me. So that's the first point. Women have a voice. The second is this, this is a specific restriction. So the question that comes up is, is this for all time? Or is this for a specific context? I think there's wisdom for all time, but I think that this is a specific instance that's happening in the church of Ephesus. And I think there's good reason for it because what we see is in verse 11, Paul makes this shift. Paul shifts from addressing the whole community to then addressing particular people in this community. We know this shift takes place because of he moves from the plural, y'all, to the singular, you. And what we, what we notice is that in verse 11, and again, this probably feels a little nerdy, but the, the payoff is worth it. In verses 11 and 15, Paul refers to a woman, singular, and then a man in verse 12, both of whom likely refer to like a husband and wife. And, and just remember, Paul is counseling Timothy on a pastoral issue. And this is what he says, verse 11. A woman or wife should learn in quietness and full submission. And it actually has a bit more uh, force than that. It can be read like this. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. What's so interesting is this is the command. In, In all of this passage, this is the only command. And it's this, a woman is to learn. And I want you to notice the manner of her learning. 
It says this, she is to do so quietly. And while that might feel demeaning to you, it's actually, it's not. Uh, because learning is not without noise and it's not with the absence of a voice. Because we just saw that women have a voice already in the passage. But rather, this is something that is mentioned at the beginning of, of the, the letter itself and, and even in chapter two, that this is, he wants the women, this woman to learn in a manner fitting a learner with quietness. And this is how the whole community who's being ordered by Jesus' love is to learn. Check this out. This is in verses one and two. Paul says this, I urge then, first of all, that all petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is for all of the people in Ephesus, for the, those followers of Jesus. It is Paul's desire that they would all live peaceful and quiet lives to what end? For godliness and holiness. This is given to all of the people. So when Paul says he wants a woman to learn quietly, he's keeping in, in step with that command, in, in step with this injunction to the whole community. See, Paul wants this woman or wife to learn, commands it even, and he wants it to take place in the way that the whole community is learning. And the same desire carries into the next verse when Paul gets a little heated here for us, but he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, likely her husband. She must be quiet. And so often we jump right to like not teaching and not having authority over a man. But I want us to remember like, she must be quiet. I, I could be wrong about this, but I think that the emphasis is still on the command that the prohibition, I do not permit a woman to teach is not that. It's not a command. Paul has a command available to him. He could say, it's, it would be in the imperative, like he could say, I do not permit a woman to teach. Like I command her not to teach. But instead, Paul uses a tense that could be more accurately translated like, I am not currently permitting a woman to teach. I am not currently permitting a woman to have authority over a man. See, I'm not currently permitting a woman to teach. It actually... Paul goes on to then clarify what is wrong with the teaching. And I think that this is so interesting. What we, what we typically read here as I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority, it doesn't actually mean authority. And I'm not trying to like um, get us to the point where we don't trust the Bible. Like I think we actually can. Jesus that we encounter in the scriptures. I'm just saying this is not as straightforward as it is as people present it. This is actually one of the most contested texts in all of the New Testament. There are like thousands of papers written on one word in this passage. So anybody who comes and says, oh, it's simple, you could just humbly say, I disagree. It's actually pretty complicated. There's different ways to see this. And, and, and this is the place. This word that's translated authority doesn't actually mean authority. And just because it's this, it's this word here, authentain, and just because it looks like our English word authority, just because a Greek word looks like an English word doesn't mean that it means the same thing in English as it does in Greek. That was kind of fast. Doesn't mean authority. <laughs> it more likely has th this case of domineering. And so more than authority, it, it has to do with the abuse of authority. It has to do with lording something over. And it most likely it's that Paul is not allowing a woman, in this case, a wife to bully or dominate or control her husband in this way through a type of teaching. And in this passage, it simply does not address the exercise of healthy authority. And it, it doesn't say it's not allowed either. 
It's addressing the exercise of an overbearing and controlling use of power because this whole letter is about bringing order to a community, a community that is experiencing disorder through this sideways teaching. And in its entirety, this is what Paul is, is writing to Timothy about. These, these dehumanizing dynamics that are like seeking to reinterpret the creation. That's why Paul, we don't have time for this because we've been going for 43 minutes. Um, but when Paul has that little bit about Adam and Eve, there's this teaching that's come into the community that Eve was created first. And that this is like the seedbed of Gnosticism. Just put that on the side and do some Googling later. But it's the seedbed that Eve was created first and from the powerfulness of Eve that she can actually then be the source of, of, of man or the authority over. And so it's that this, this thought has gotten. So Paul is correcting that. He's just saying, no, this is the order of creation. Because Paul wants that order to come. He wants to reimagine hope in this community. He wants to reimagine a place where women and men can lead and teach according to their gifting. He wants a place of equity and obedience. And simply put, like, our division cannot contain the work that God's inviting us into. We can, it's, this, is a vi this is an option, I don't think it's viable, but we can remain divided. We can just, it's easier to leave than it is to stay. But a dialogue, a dialogue might actually present something to us. And the thing that might present it might not be an idea, but it might just be a person. We might actually see that the person that we disagree with has been raised in a way that that is a place of safety and security. And the way that you've been raised in your experiences are like on the opposite side of that. I just think that the church can, can be by the power of the spirit where we hold our disagreements like together with humility. And I, I don't think that this is a passage that we ought to clobber our brothers and sisters with. It's a place that we can humbly explore, we can disagree well. But I also am a, a dude. <laughs> like no one has said to me, Kyle, you can't teach. I've never had somebody say, you can't be a pastor because you're a man. I've never experienced that. And what I know is that people in our community have. And what I just wanna say is if that's a desire you have, like we wanna affirm that, we, we wanna draw that out, we wanna see your character formed and we wanna see you, whether it's here or elsewhere, released to serve and lead according to that. See, whether you're in the first century or you're in the 21st century, Jesus is doing more than like offering a program of radical inclusion. Jesus is making a way so that we, whether male or female or non-binary, whomever, that we may live as true people, that we can move toward love and holiness and participation. This, by the way, is the gospel, that we would not just be set free from sin, but set free to live. All of us. Mm -hmm.